Well, last week in our exposition through Peter's first epistle, we came to verse 5 of chapter 5. And there we found, as you recall, two exhortations. The first one to young people. And that exhortation was to learn to submit to your church leaders. And the second exhortation was to everyone, namely to learn to manifest humility toward one another. But we find as we move on today that Peter is not yet done with the subject of humility. It continues in verses 6 and 7. In fact, verses 5 through 7 really constitute all one unit. We broke them apart, not for exegetical reasons, but for reasons of of, uh, practical expediency, because I didn't think you were were ready for a two-hour sermon last Sunday. So we uh, broke it apart in order to make it more more, uh, palatable and more useful. But we are actually looking at one unit in 1 Peter 5, 5, which says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders... Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Today, as we come to verses 6 and 7 of 1 Peter 5, we will... See, I trust, five aspects of humility as we learn more about developing humility. And we begin by noticing the reason for developing humility, and that hangs upon that word, therefore, that introduces verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Therefore, there's a reason here, and when you find a therefore, you know, I'm sure, to Look back in the previous context. And this, therefore, points back to the last part of verse 5, that quotation that came from Proverbs chapter 3, that Peter quotes, that James quotes also in the New Testament, that statement that reminds us, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves. Because God resists the proud. God, as we learned last Sunday, marshals his armies. God gathers his soldiers against the proud. God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud successfully, for who can resist his power? God opposes the proud appropriately, and he uses a variety of different agents to do that. He marshals his armies, and his armies many times look to us like the people and circumstances in our lives. And we don't always recognize those as the messengers of God, but Peter would have us do that, to recognize that all of these things are the messengers of God in our lives. Remember in the Old Testament where the prophet said of of God that Cyrus is my servant, he is my shepherd. Cyrus, that pagan king that God used to chasten the nation of Israel. You see, Cyrus was a soldier in the army of God to oppose the proud, the proud nation of Israel who had turned away from God and gone their own way. 
So God resists the proud. And God brings into our lives various circumstances and very people for the very purpose of humbling us. God resists the proud. But God gives grace to the humble. God gives unmerited favor to those who are humble, to those who humble themselves, to those who have been humbled by the mighty hand of God. And we need God's grace, how we need it. The grace of God is necessary if we are ever to be saved. And God's grace is necessary for his people if we are going to successfully live a Christian life. We need the grace of God. And we can forfeit that grace through pride. Because God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, and we're coming now to the reason for that that word therefore, that reaches back to this statement. Therefore, here's the reason. If God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, therefore wisdom will desire humility. Therefore, if we are wise, we are going to want to be humble. And we are going to welcome humbling. Wisdom will desire to develop humility in the life of that one who has wisdom. And having been given by the Spirit of God understanding of these things, therefore, we will desire that God will work in our lives to humble us so that we can receive a greater measure of His grace. That's the reason why we ought to develop humility. But secondly, we come to a significant requirement for developing humility, maybe the most important requirement. Humble yourselves. It is an imperative. It is a command. It is not an option. It is good advice, and we have first of all viewed it as good advice. If God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble, then the wise person would be advised to welcome humbling and develop humbling. But it's more than that. It is an imperative. It is a command. Therefore, humble yourselves. It's not an option. Now, this is an imperative. However, the Greek form that is used uh, could be either a passive imperative or a middle imperative. We know what passive is in the English. We don't have the middle voice in the English, but the middle voice in the Greek is reflexive. So it can either be, imper- it can either be passive imperative. In other words, be humbled. Therefore, be humbled. It's hard to command a passive, but the meaning of that would be, if that's what Peter intended by the Spirit of God, the meaning of that would be, allow yourself to be humbled, submit unresistingly to humbling circumstances. Do not resist the humbling circumstances that God brings into your life. Do not resent the humbling circumstances that God brings into your life. Do not reject as unsuitable. For you, the humbling circumstances that God brings into your life. In other words, cooperate with God as he sends those humbling agents to you. Be humbled. Cooperate with God in the humbling that he brings into your life. As you find yourself being humbled by God, you can either reject it or you can embrace it. If you are wise, you will embrace it because God resists the proud.
but gives grace to the humble. However, this imperative can also be a middle imperative, and that's the way that I think all the translators take it. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. This is activity for us to do. Actively humble yourself before God. One thing this tells us is that if we're going to successfully humble ourselves toward one another, as we were taught in verse 5, we first of all have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Remember verse 5 said, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Humility is necessary for harmonious relations in the body of Christ. Indeed, harmonious relations in every area of life, whether it be marriage or, or employment or whatever it may be, Humility is required if we're going to have peaceful relationships, and that is highly prized by God in the body of Christ. Stop wrangling, stop dividing, stop arguing with one another, but be unified. And the way to do that, of course, is to humble yourself, be clothed with humility toward one another in the body of Christ. But before we can ever carry out this human Dimension, this desirable human attribute, we have to realize that first of all, we've got to do business with God. We'll never truly humble ourselves toward one another until first of all, we have humbled ourselves in the presence of God. And so to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God is parallel to clothing yourself with humility in verse 5. All of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, another verb that can be either passive or middle, and probably, as we said last week, would better be understood as middle. Rather than be clothed, it is clothe yourself, because that very word, you remember, has the idea of tying on a piece of clothing like an apron. So, consciously, regularly, every morning as you get up, Tie on that white apron of humility. Clothe yourself with humility. Purpose that you are going to, to manifest humility, that you are going to act and react toward those around you in your life today with humility. Tie on that humility. But, of course, the only way you can do that is by humbling yourself before God. It's not simply a matter of purposing to do this. You can make all the resolutions and determinations you want to, but if you are proud toward God and resistant toward God and unwilling to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, you will never be able to act humbly toward those around you. But it's a command. Humble yourself. Humility is not an option. Humility is coming your way. And you have two options, really, either submit to it and profit, or else be further humbled by the mighty, irresistible hand of God, because God knows how to humble us. Better to bow the knee, better to bend, better to submit ourselves quickly before his humbling actions than to stand there stiff-necked and proud and require him to put greater and greater and greater pressure upon us to force us into a humble posture. And that brings us, therefore, to the recognition 
that promotes humility. And that's indicated by that phrase, under the mighty hand of God. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. The Bible is filled with symbolism. And this is one of those symbols, the mighty hand of God. We know that technically speaking, God doesn't have a hand. God is a spirit. He doesn't have body parts. And yet the Bible often describes God in terms of body parts, doesn't he? His ear, ear is open to the cries of his children. His eyes are, are searching to and fro throughout the earth. The Bible often describes God in terms of body parts. And it does so again in this particular section. The technical term for that is an anthropomorphism, which means ascribing to God who is a spirit parts of a body as if he were a man. And that's done for our benefit so that we can better understand God and something about the way he operates in the human realm. But this idea of the mighty hand of God is a very common Old Testament symbol. I'll give you two or three examples. In Exodus 13... In regard to the exodus of the children of Israel out of Egypt, we read in verse 9, It shall be as a sign to you on your hand, and as a memorial between your eyes, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt with a strong hand. Symbolic the power of God that delivered them. Similarly, we read in Deuteronomy 3, 24, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servants your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds? You have begun to show your mighty hand. You are, you are demonstrating your power, your mighty deeds. You are showing your servant your mighty hand. Again, symbolism for the power of God. And we could go through the Old Testament and pick up many of these. Deuteronomy 4.34. Or did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great terrors according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Those miracles, those mighty, mighty miracles God did that eventuated in the release of his people from Egypt were described in terms of God's mighty hand, his, his irresistible power. Job uses similar language, and we can find it throughout the Old Testament. And so to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God means to humble ourselves Consciously under God's mighty power. Under God's great power, His omnipotence. God is all-powerful. Nothing stops God. Nothing can stop God. Pharaoh thought he could. Pharaoh thought his armies were great enough to retain the children of Israel and to keep them in slavery in Egypt. He did not want to let them go. He refused to let them go. He marshaled all the power of that mighty nation of Egypt 
Egypt in order to keep God's children enslaved, but he was unable to do so because God is more powerful. God exercised his right hand, his mighty power, his omnipotence, released his children from bondage. And so what God's power does is enforces his sovereign rule. That's really what we're getting at here. In other words, God not only has the right to rule the universe because he made it, and that gives him the right, he made everything in it, everything that has life, derived that life from God, every breath that I draw has been given to me by God, God certainly has the right to rule my life. God certainly has the right to rule the universe. God certainly has the right to rule the nations of the world from king to pauper. But God not only has the right to rule, God has the power to enforce his rule. He doesn't claim a powerless right. He isn't begging for people to please let him be ruler. I have the right to rule. I ought to rule. You ought to let me be ruler. But by his mighty hand, his omnipotence, he enforces his sovereign rule. He demonstrates that almighty power whenever it's suitable for him to do so. And you can be sure the day is coming when there will be a display of his mighty power so great that all the earth, all the creatures of the universe actually, shall bow the knee and acknowledge his sovereign rule. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a day coming when the heavens will melt with a fervent heat and the earth shall be consumed by the power of God and his mighty power will be unmistakably displayed. But for those who have eyes to see it, it's being displayed all the time. That right hand of power. And so to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God really is to acknowledge in your life God's sovereign rule his right to rule, his power to enforce his rule. So this is the intended application of this phrase. We need to recognize that all of our difficulties ultimately come from God. Certainly there are secondary causes, there are human agents, there are earthly circumstances, It's easy for us to erroneously say that all of those bad things came from the devil, that God never intended those, only the good things come from God. But that's a completely erroneous viewpoint of God. It's an unbiblical viewpoint of God. God takes responsibility for everything. The things that we would call bad as well as the things that we would call good. God gladly takes responsibility for everything. And of course the devil is involved in many of these things, but the devil is simply God's unwilling servant. The devil has to do what God requires him to do because God's right hand of power is stronger than the power of the devil. And so what we have to do to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God is to submit to God's sovereign purposes in our life. You say, what are God's sovereign purposes in my life? Well, I don't know what his sovereign purposes are for tomorrow, 
But I know what his sovereign purposes were for yesterday. And so do you. You say, what are they? Whatever happened. Whatever happened to you yesterday and last week and last month and last year and 10 years ago and 20 years ago and 30 years ago, whatever happened to you, that was God's sovereign purpose for your life. Now, the sooner you recognize that and submit to it, the sooner you recognize that and humble yourself before that truth, then the better off you'll be. As long as you are unwilling to acknowledge that, or to agree with that, or to to submit to God's wisdom and His right to do whatever that was that you found uncomfortable, then you are actually battling against God. And your pride is resisting God. And that's not good. Who's going to win that battle? It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. So humble yourself. Under the mighty hand of God. Is your livelihood threatened? Have you lost your job? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Have your dreams and goals and aspirations been thwarted and you can't understand why? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Recognize God's sovereign purposes in that. His right to bring these things into your life. Submit to God's sovereignty. Surrender to God's sovereignty. Sweetly surrender to God's sovereignty. The attitude with which we do this is so critical. Because you need to recognize that He is God and I am not. And that may be the most profound statement I will make in this entire sermon. God is God, which means he has the right to rule. That's the definition of God. God is God, and I am not God. I don't have the right to rule. I don't have the right to rule anything. I don't have the right to rule my life. Now, that's man's fundamental problem, isn't it? That's, that's why we don't surrender to God. That's why many times we don't really embrace Christ by faith. We might make a a profession of faith hoping to, to have fire escape so we can go to heaven and not go to hell, but to really surrender my life to Him and to acknowledge that He has the right to rule me, that I do not have the right to control my life. It's not my life. It's not my decisions. It's not my goals, my ambitions, my purposes, what I want, my comforts. It's not any of that. It's all God's. It is His right to rule me. And we must surrender to that. He is God. I am not. So He's on the throne. I am not. He has the right to rule. I do not. He has the right to do what He wills. I don't have the right to do what I will. And that's the recognition that promotes humility. And it's the opposite of that that is the very definition of pride, isn't it? So if God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, what? Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. But number four, we notice that there's a reward that follows humility. 
Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. There's a promise of future exaltation for those who heed this admonition and who obey this command. It is a promise that is predicated upon humility. God exalts the humble. That's really almost a an oxymoron, isn't it? God exalts the humble. Because, of course, God has to debase us in order to humble us. It's our desire for exaltation that's the problem. When we are clamoring for exaltation, striving for exaltation, working for exaltation, determined that we are going to exalt ourselves, then God in mercy, grace, and love says no, and He brings us back down. He debases us because we are proud and we need to be humbled. But then when God has done His humbling work, then in our humbled condition, God will now exalt us. Isn't that what Christ taught? The way to greatness is service. The way up is down. Here's Peter saying the same thing. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and He will exalt you in due time. Let Him do the exaltation. It's not your job to exalt yourself. It's your job to humble yourself. It's God's job to exalt you when he chooses to do so. You see, God's ultimate purpose is not to humiliate us, but to exalt us. But he wants to exalt us in a way that does not ruin us in pride. He wants to exalt us in a way that does not dishonor Christ. He wants to exalt us in a way so that in our exaltation, we are not taking glory to ourselves, but we are giving glory to God. And so when we are not in a condition to do that because of pride, then God takes us down a notch. Not enough? Another notch. Not enough? Another notch. Not enough? Another notch. But when... We have humbled ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that we are not taking glory to ourselves, and that exaltation will not ruin us because of pride. Then God will exalt us. He'll lift us up. Now, neither the nature nor the time of this promised exaltation is specified by Peter. He doesn't tell us what the exaltation will consist of because, of course, it varies widely from person to person. Nor does he tell us when this exaltation will take place. He simply promises that in God's time, God will lift you out of your humbling circumstances. Promise. God says, I promise. The humbling circumstances that you are that you are striving with now, if you're God's children, they are not forever. They are for a time, a season, a purpose. They are to carry out good and gracious purposes that God has designed for you. And they will not last forever. At the appropriate time, God is going to lift you out of those humbling circumstances. You say, when will that happen? I can't tell you. The time is not specified. The word that is used for time here is not an eschatological term. So we can't say that it 
it has to mean at the second coming of Christ. It could mean that. In some cases, I'm sure it will mean that, but that's not necessarily what it means. This exaltation in some cases will be at the second coming of Christ. And we need to be willing to wait until then, if that's what God deems best. We may have to be humbled all throughout our lifetime and only receive that exaltation when Christ returns and takes his children and makes us co-heirs with Christ and co-regents with Christ and will rule and reign with him and we will be exalted along with Christ to a position of honor that we can't really even understand or imagine now, but it's going to be a great exaltation and our faith in Christ will be vindicated and our willingness to trust God in difficult circumstances will be vindicated and all those who scoffed at God's word and would not bow the knee to Jesus Christ, they are all going to be humbled and we will be seen to be exalted far above them in that day. That day is coming when Christ comes again. But in many cases, God does exalt us even in this life when the humbling process is complete. Think about Job. Job was humbled, wasn't he? But he was exalted too. He was humbled so that he was brought down so low below that of his friends and his his uh, friends came in and in the guise of giving him counsel brought him greater trial, greater pressure and torment and difficulty and anguish of soul as it seemed like they were accusing him of all kinds of things that were not true. But yes, there was some pride in Job's life as there is in all of our lives. Job was a good man, an exceptionally good man, but he wasn't a perfect man. He certainly wasn't sinless. And God squeezed some more pride out of the life of Job. And then in the end, he exalted him over his friends and made his friends come to Job. And Job prayed for them that they might be delivered. And and God restored to him all of the things that had been taken from him, all of the wealth, restored a a wonderful family to him again. (coughs) A good example of exaltation in God's time, in due time. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, for in due time, he will exalt you. He will lift you up. And so the exaltation may be in this life, or it may not be until the Lord returns, in which case, actually, then those who were exalted in some measure in this life will receive an even greater exaltation, because that's really the exaltation that matters. But what this is telling us is, at the appropriate time and in an appropriate way, God will exalt those who humble themselves before his sovereignty. Those who are willing to recognize the sovereignty of God in their lives, not just in theory. I think every Christian says, I believe in the sovereignty of God. Not just in theory, but actually humbling yourself, submitting yourself to those particular circumstances that God has brought into your life. And those who do so, God will exalt. He's fully able to do so. The choir sang it, This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. God is in charge, regardless of what it looks like. God is in perfect control of all circumstances, regardless of what things look like. And God is able to exalt his children, 
in due season. God's exaltation is therefore worth waiting for, however long it takes. And God's exaltation is worth humbling ourselves for, however low we need to go. And so in patience and faith, we need to trust Him. If God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. But there's one final thought. And we come now to verse 7. And the requisite for experiencing humility. And we read, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. The bunny rabbit verse. In our house, when Jordana was probably about three, I don't remember. And we were reviewing verses, probably around the breakfast table one morning. She said, let's say the bunny rabbit verse. The bunny rabbit verse, what is that? Yeah, you know, he carrot for you. It's always stuck with us. The bunny rabbit verse. He cares for you. Now the question is, how does that thought connect with what we've seen about pride and humility that goes before? It almost at first glance, seems to be an entirely separate statement, like Peter's moving on to a separate thought about God's providential and, and uh, personal care for his children. And yet, grammatically, we recognize that it is a very much connected thought. Casting all your care upon him. That's a present participle, and it depends upon the verb in the previous verse, and therefore links to that verb. And that's the way it is indicated in most translations. In mine, we come to the end of verse 6, there's a comma. Start verse 7, it doesn't begin with a capital letter. It recognizes that casting all your care upon him is linked to humbling ourselves. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And how do you do that? By casting all your care upon him. For he cares for you. But again, how does this verse connect theologically with the thought that goes before. What Peter is telling us, if we have ears to hear it, is that pride is at the root of our anxieties. Pride's at the root of our anxieties, our worries, our cares. Now, I'm sure some of you are going going to resist that statement and argue with that statement and say that it's not so, But I would submit to you that the Bible is clear that it actually is so. Pride is at the root of anxiety. Sometimes our pride is disguised as false humility. We're really getting down under the surface here. It's not just enough to seem to humble yourself. There has to be a true humbling of heart. And sometimes pride is disguised as false humility. Sometimes it's disguised as shyness or inferiority or other things. But you see, when we act as if we must take care of ourselves, what is that? That's pride, and that's what brings worry. How foolish we are to even think we could take care of ourselves. But when our 
minds are filled with anxious thoughts, it's because we are trying to figure out how we are going to overcome all of these difficult circumstances that either have come into our lives or that we fear may come into our lives. How am I going to take care of this? Casting all your care upon Him. For He careth for you. God didn't tell you to take care of these things. In fact, God told you just the opposite. God told you to commit all these things to the Lord. And so being filled with anxiety is really to be concerned with self more than God. I'm worried about this and how that's going to affect me. I'm worried about that and how that's going to affect me. I'm worried about this and how that affects my comfort and my security. And God says, I want you to trust me for your security. I want you to trust me for the circumstances of your life. I want you to focus upon me more than you focus upon yourself. I want you to seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. That's the attitude I want you to have. The problem is that we focus too much upon self, what I want, how I feel. And God says, I want you to focus on me, what I want for you, how I feel about your life, your attitudes, your obediences and disobediences. And so what are we to commit to God? All your care. All your care, all your anxieties. It's a word that means to be drawn in different directions, like somebody who's got six horses tied to them and they're all pulling in different directions. Wow. Talk about pressure. That's pressure. You feel like you're going to be pulled into pieces. Anxieties, those things that one is anxious or worried about, those multiplicity of concerns that, that threaten to pull us apart, or so we feel, Those many concerns that distract our focus from God and God's word and God's revealed will for our lives. We're so distracted by all of these concerns and cares that our attention is pulled away from God and his concerns and cares. It may be past memories that we have never really dealt with in a God-honoring way. It may be present pressures that are going on in our life right now. It may be future fears of things that we think are going to happen, and we are anticipating them and worrying about them before they ever come. It is all of our discouragement, our discontent, our unanswered questions, our pain, our suffering, our difficulties of all kinds. We are to take them all, casting all your cares upon Him. All of them. And how do we do this? We cast them upon Him. That word cast is used only one other time in the Bible. It's in Luke 19.35 when Jesus was approaching Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry. And we read, Then they brought Him to Jesus, that is the colt, and they threw their clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. They, they threw their clothes, they cast their garments on the colt to make a saddle for Christ. They, they threw those garments on him, and that's the word here, 
casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. It's a decisive act. It's an energetic act. It's to throw away from yourself and to throw upon Him. And we do this in prayer. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And what's the result of that? Philippians 4, 6, and 7. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In prayer, and it must be, of course, believing prayer in faith. Casting our cares upon Him. That is, recognizing who He is. The powerful, omnipotent God. The wise God. We truly be, we trust His wisdom. More than our own. Isn't that our problem? That we are tempted to think that our wisdom, how we think things ought to be done, is superior to God's wisdom, how He thinks things ought to be done? We would never say that. We know that's blasphemy. But when we hold on to our worries and cares and refuse to cast them upon Him, that's really what we are saying in our soul. We must trust His wisdom. We must trust His power. We would never say that we don't think He's powerful enough to take care of us and our needs. But sometimes we act as if we don't think He really is. Cast all of your care upon Him, the faithful one. We would say that we believe that He is faithful that He keeps all of His promises, that He cares for His children, that He does everything that He has said that He will do. But sometimes we act as if we don't really believe that. We don't believe He's wise. We don't believe He's faithful. We don't believe He's powerful. We are not believing in Him. We are not trusting Him. We are doubting Him. We're trusting ourselves instead of Him. That's pride. Humility says, I'm going to cast all my cares on Him. I'm going to cast all these things away from myself. I recognize that I'm not the one who can take care of these things. I'm not the one who is supposed to take care of these things. God's Word tells me to cast these things upon Christ. And we can do so with joy and gladness. Why? Because we know He cares for you. One of the most comforting statements in all the Bible. He cares for you. He cares for His children. He not only is wise and knows all things and is powerful and can do all things and is faithful to keep His promises, but He has a personal loving care for every one of His children. He cares for you. The watchful care of interest and affection. He doesn't get distracted and and involved with affairs somewhere else in the universe and forget about me. That's too small a God when you're thinking that way. But when you think about who God is, when you exalt Him for who He truly is, the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, All wise, faithful, loving, heavenly Father who cares for His children. He says so. He says so 
over and over again in different ways. He says so. He tells us how much he cares for us. We honor him when we believe that. We dishonor him when we don't believe that. And if we do believe that, then we'll do what he says. And we'll gladly cast all of our cares upon him, knowing that he cares for us. For his word tells us that the God who cares for birds and lilies cares more for his own dear children. His word tells us that he not only is able to care for us, but he's willing to. He delights to do so. He will do what is good for his own dear children. You see, humility is developed by exercising an ever greater trust in God. And pride is maintained by continuing to trust in ourselves or in other men. Who are you going to trust in, yourself or God? Who are you going to trust in, the government or God? Who are you going to trust in, Obama or God? Which makes the most sense. Which produces the greater rewards? Which are you going to pursue? Then let's ask God to help us. Father, teach us how to humble ourselves before you. Apply the truth of this passage to our individual needs and cares and concerns and difficulties and trials. Lord, some of your children are all bound up with worry and care. They haven't recognized, O Lord, that this is a manifestation of pride and lack of trust in you. Lord, show them that today and enable them by your Spirit to trust you fully and to focus upon you and to truly bring themselves down even as they exalt you, O God. And may we honor you by trusting you, by humbling ourselves before you, and by walking according to the truth of your word, as we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.